the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. You'll never guess, but it's seven minutes after four o'clock. It's amazing how that just happens every day. We start right about seven minutes after four o'clock. Quite a coincidence. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Jason Williams. He's executive director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. We're going to take a look at the 2018 legislative session. They've got 35 days. That's from Monday till 35 days. And uh, we'll take a look at some of the major issues that they're likely to take up or at least attempt to begin taking up in the short amount of time that they have the cap and trade or cap and tax, as some of us prefer to call it, PERS, offshore drilling, uh, mandatory mental health counseling for law enforcement. That's been introduced. Uh, federal tax cuts and Oregon, uh, Oregon's revenue hole that that's created and so on. So we'll talk with Jason Williams about that and much more when he joins us later in uh, in this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with uh, Holly Mead. She's Liberty Council's director of communications, but she's also the international director for for the Day of Purity, which is coming up on February 14th. This is the 15th year that this has been observed, and I'm a bit late uh, finding out about it. I got a press release earlier today and wanted to give her an opportunity to let you and others know about this opportunity for young people in their respective uh, schools. That's coming up again on February 14th. Well, the House of Representatives today... Well, tonight, from their vantage point, approved a stopgap measure. Actually, that was uh, yesterday. The House passed their stopgap measure spending bill to run the government through March the 23rd and bolster defense funding, sending the bill to the Senate for consideration. Well, that was last night. The vote there then was 245 to 182. Eight Republicans voted no. 17 Republicans vote or rather Democrats voted yes. This is the first step in averting a possible government shutdown before the 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday uh, that a budget has to be passed or the government goes into default once again. It's unclear how the bill may fare in the Senate, or at least it was then. We know now they passed their own version. Lawmakers there could strike the defense spending plan, zap the package back to the House. Well, instead, they came up with their own version. More on that in a few moments. Both parties are uh, and have been in negotiations trying to secure an agreement on raising caps for both defense and non-defense spending, which could be the key to unlock Congress's fiscal issues, which also uh, uh, while also rather funding the government. Well, Democratic leaders have dropped their strategy for using the funding fight to extract uh, concessions on immigration. Well, at least most of them did, with the exception of Nancy Pelosi, who spent eight hours making her point. More on that in a few moments. Uh, they had been seeking uh, extended protections for so-called dreamers, immigrants who've lived in the country illegally since they were brought uh, to the U.S. as children. Instead, the Democrats prepared to cut a deal that would reap tens of billions of dollars for other priorities, including combating uh, opioids while taking their chances on solving the immigration. Immigration impasse later. 
Well, the Senate uh, slated to begin a debate to address the dilemma today, which they, in fact, did. Uh, but next week, they have slated to begin the discussion on DACA. Well, Republican and Democrat uh, senators um, uh, announced a budget agreement earlier today. That includes a big boost in spending for the Pentagon, would keep the government running past a looming deadline. Uh, says uh, Mitch McConnell on the in on the floor during his speech. I am pleased to announce that our bipartisan bicameral negotiations of defense spending and other priorities have yielded a significant agreement. It didn't include uh, immigration either. Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer said we have reached a budget deal that neither side loves, but both sides can be proud of. Well, Congress has until February 8th. That's tomorrow, of course, to pass the spending bill and the deal would fund the government through March the 23rd. So we've kicked the can down the road a couple more weeks. And while Congress would still have to pass another spending measure before that deadline, the agreement announced uh, today includes a longer term pact uh, to lift spending caps to roughly $400 billion for the Pentagon and domestic programs over two years, giving them what they need in terms of certainty to determine how they're going to move forward without these uh, fits and starts that we've seen in Washington over funding the government. Defense Secretary James Mattis said today that he was encouraged by the deal, saying, I'm heartened that Congress recognizes the sobering effect of budgetary uncertainty on America's military and on the men and women who provide for our nation, our national defense. Uh, Mattis uh, was at a White House briefing. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders also expressed optimism about the deal, uh, though she wouldn't yet say whether the president would sign the agreement if passed. My guess is he'll sign it. She did say, look, we uh, applaud the steps forward uh, that they have made, but we're going to need to see what's in the final bill. We are certainly happy with the direction that it's moving, particularly that we're moving away from the crisis budgeting that we've been in on uh, in the past. Well, McConnell said the measure would uh, rewrite existing defense limits that have uh, hamstrung our armed forces and jeopardized our national security. The bill removes automatic spending cuts known as sequestration caps for both defense and non-defense programs. The caps were put in place in 2011 as part of the Budget Control Act to lift the debt limit. Uh, which they've now blown. Uh, the deal would lift the uh, debt limit and also includes disaster relief for hurricane-stricken areas, as well as a four-year extension of the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP program. The agreement, though, doesn't uh, tackle immigration, as I've mentioned, at a time when Congress is uh, debating how to address those affected by the, lo- the looming expiration of the former president's uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The program gave a deportation reprieve to young illegal immigrants who came to the United United States as children. Uh, President Obama admitted at the time that he didn't have the authority to extend that uh, protection, and the Supreme Court would likely have given the opportunity to overturn it, as it did DAPA. But the president, the current president, has given uh, Congress and the courts have given Congress a, a length of time to resolve the issue one way or the other. Mitch McConnell committed to a, a freewheeling debate on immigration in the Senate. Uh, If it's uh, still open after February 8th, uh, the House of Representatives uh, Tuesday night approved their version of the stopgap spending bill uh, to run the government through March the 23rd to bolster defense funding. But the two do not match. And so it's back in the hands of the House to either pass or they'll have to come up with a conference committee in the interim because they only have until midnight tomorrow or just a minute before midnight. Uh, As I mentioned, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi Uh, She uh, spoke for a record eight straight hours uh, demanding immigration vote. 
She was uh, she knew certainly that that wasn't going to happen, but she did make her point. The minority leader held the floor of the House of Representatives for more than eight hours today to deliver a record breaking marathon speech protesting a budget deal reaching uh, reached rather by Senate leaders. Now, this may be her last hurrah as younger, more ambitious Democrats are vying for her position and many arguing that if. Uh, the Democrats don't retake the House. Nancy Pelosi will be uh, will no longer be in a leadership position by demand. Clad in four inch heels, Pelosi spoke for eight hours and seven minutes, was uh, given a standing ovation by her Democratic colleagues when she yielded the floor at 611. My guess is they came and went throughout those eight hours. In her remarks, Pelosi announced that she and many fellow House Democrats would oppose the package unless House Speaker Paul Ryan promised to allow a vote on a plan to uh, shield from deportation hundreds of thousands thousands of immigrants uh, brought to the U.S. illegally. Let Congress work its will, said Pelosi, who noted that Senate Republicans have slated a debate on the politically um, uh, freighted subject uh, starting next week. What are we afraid of, she says. Uh, According to the House Historian's Office, Pelosi appeared to have set a record for the longest continued speech in the chamber. Uh, In the chamber's history, the previous record of five hours and 15 minutes was Uh, set by Representative Champ Clark, a Democrat out of Missouri, in 1909. Pelosi's speech uh, would not have uh, come close to that length. Uh, The 10 longest filibusters in the Senate, Uh, the most recent notable filibuster came in April of last year when Senator Jeff uh, Merkley, he spoke for 15 hours and 28 minutes in opposition to the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. In 2013, Texas Senator Ted Cruz delivered the longest filibuster in 60 years when he spoke for 21 hours and 18 minutes. Uh, against the uh, the bill to end the 2013 government shutdown in an effort to defund Obamacare. Pelosi's speech wasn't considered a filibuster, which can take place only in the Senate. However, House leaders are often granted extra time to speak on the floor, a privilege known as the magic minute. In this case, that magic minute stretched out to eight hours straight in five-inch heels. Wow. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, while the Senate and the House are attempting to avoid a government shutdown, President Trump told Republican lawmakers yesterday that he would love to see a shutdown of the federal government if Democrats do not support his proposed changes to immigration law. Well, it seems that immigration will not be a part of what either the House or the Senate comes up with in a continuing resolution. The president made the, uh, the comments as GOP leaders raced to muster support for yet another stopgap spending bill, which they both passed, but they differ dramatically enough that some compromise is going to have to be made. We'll see what happens in the House. The White House has uh, proposed uh, steep cuts in uh, legal immigration, increased border security, including a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border in exchange for continuing protections for hundreds of thousands or 1.9 million immigrants who were brought to the United States illegally as children. Well, Democrats, they balked at the proposal. They forced a three-day government shutdown over the issue last month, but somehow it's apparently not important enough this time around. And it's been jettisoned uh, in favor of an agreement that in the Senate, at least, they're going to take it up next week in the House. Well, we'll see what Nancy Pelosi's efforts yield. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer told reporters that Trump's latest comment speaks for itself. But uh, Mr. Schumer is no longer insisting that immigration be a centerpiece of a continuing resolution. So we'll see what happens over the next 24 hours because they have actually less than 24 hours to come up with a, um, a solution.
Meanwhile, a newly released version of GOP senators' criminal referral for Trump's dossier, or the Trump dossier, author Christopher Steele, appears to support some key claims from the controversial memo on alleged surveillance abuse released last week by House Republicans and the White House, keeping in mind that the Democrats have on the president's desk their version of a rebuttal memo. Uh, That memo commissioned by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez uh, continues to fuel a firestorm on Capitol Hill, where Democrats are pushing for the release of their own counter memo. The central point of the dispute is uh, whether or not the documents uh, issued by the uh, committee chairman uh, claim that the salacious anti-Trump dossier was uh, crucial to the FBI's efforts to seek a surveillance warrant for the Trump associate uh, that was under surveillance for uh, nearly a year and that the applications omitted the Democratic National Committee and Clinton campaign's funding for the research via Glenn Simpson's Fusion GPS firm, which hired Steele. Well, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and Senator Lindsey Graham appeared to, uh, to back up those claims uh, in a criminal referral sent in early January to FBI Director Christopher Wray and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenbaum, or Rosenstein, rather, the surveillance application they said relied heavily on Mr. Steele's dossier claims. Further, they say the application failed to disclose that the identities of Mr. Simpson's ultimate clients were the Clinton campaign and the DNC. Well, the referral also helps explain a, a point of contention in recent days after uh, the the committee chairman seemed to admit on Fox and Friends after the release of the memo that the FBI application did include a footnote acknowledging some political origins of the dossier. This admission helped fuel uh, the Democratic claims from ranking uh, Representative Adam Schiff and others that the dossier's political connection was not concealed from the surveillance court as alleged. Well, according to Grassley and Graham's referral, the FBI noted to a vaguely limited extent the political origins of the dossier in a footnote that said the information was compiled at the direction of a law firm who had hired an identified U.S. person now known as Glenn Simpson of, Ju- of uh, Fusion GPS. A subsequent passage in the letter is redacted, but they said the DNC and Clinton campaign were not mentioned. So that seems to at least support in part what uh, has been alleged. Following a, crest, a request rather from Grassley, the FBI uh, yesterday removed some redactions and a, a cleaner version of the and, uh, was posted online to help uh, clarify and, I suppose, inform the American people. Now, as I mentioned, the Democrats have their own uh, version of the of a memo uh, that they say will clear up some misconceptions generated by the original Republican memo, and that is currently on the president's desk. Earlier today, we'd heard that the president has yet to look at it. It's much longer than the GOP version, and uh, some Republicans are uh, are claiming that it is uh, deliberately includes information that is classified so that its appearance— once approved, presumably, uh, would be marked up and much of it would be redacted to make a point. We'll see what actually happens, but that's uh, pretty much uh, where things stand right now. Also, newly released text messages between FBI paramours uh, Stroke and Page include an exchange about preparing talking points for then FBI Director James Comey to give to President Obama, who wanted to know everything we're doing. Now, the dispute now is over what uh, they were referring to. Everything we're doing, did that have to do with the uh, Russian probe in general? Did it have to do with the uh, probe into the 
uh, Trump campaign in particular. So there's some back and forth on what they meant by that. But the presumption is that uh, Obama wanted to know everything that was going on in this particular probe that the two paramours had been writing about previously and after. Well, the message from uh, Page and Stroke was among thousands of texts between the the pair reviewed by Fox News. And they both uh, worked at one point for special counsel Robert Mueller's uh, poll, a probe rather, the uh, of alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Now, Page wrote to Stroke on the 2nd of uh, 2016, which is amazing that they're using their uh, their work phones for this kind of communication. But she wrote about prepping Comey because POTUS, the president of the United States, wants to know everything we're doing. According to a newly released Senate report, that text raises questions about Obama's personal involvement in the Clinton email investigation and calls into question statements he made while president and under oath or at least um, uh, in public, suggesting that he was staying out of uh, all aspects of the investigation. In text previously revealed, the pair have uh, shown their disdain for Republicans in general, as well as Trump in particular, calling him, well, we don't need to repeat that. Under the newly, uh, among the newly disclosed text, Stroke uh, also calls Virginians who voted against then FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe's wife for a state Senate seat, ignorant hillbillies. Uh, that text came from Stroke to Page on the 4th of uh, November uh, in 2015. The day after Jill McCabe lost a hotly contested Virginia state Senate election, Stroke said of the results, disappointing, but uh, look at the district map. Um, uh, Loudon is being uh, gentrified, but it's still largely ignorant hillbillies. Good for her for running, but curious if she's energized or never again. Well, Senator Ron Johnston, a Republican out of Wisconsin, along with majority staff from the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, is releasing the texts along with a report titled The Clinton Email Scandal and the FBI's Investigation of It. The newly uncovered text I've just referred to and much more reveal a bit more about the timing of the discovery of hundreds of thousands of emails on former Congressman Anthony Weiner's laptop, ultimately leading to Comey's infamous letter to Congress just days before the 2016 presidential election. And it goes on uh, and on. It can be somewhat challenging to follow. We'll try to provide you with uh, at least an overview of some of the more recent disclosures and then provide something of an overview at some point down the road to put them into context. But again, at this point, uh, with regard to the um, GOP memo, we're waiting for the Democrat version much longer, much more will be redacted, according to um, uh, Mattis. And um, presumably the president will sign off on that uh, shortly. He has five days uh, to make a decision, and I think it's already been a two or three, so we'll see what happens next. All right, 29 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. When we uh, return, we're going to talk with Jason Williams. He's Executive Director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. I know we are aware of the fact that the Oregon legislature is in session. They have 35 days to do the people's business. So what is uh, what is the business they are about doing? We'll find out from Jason, and he'll give us some insight as well. Again, Jason Williams, Executive Director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Jason Williams is the executive director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. He is the founder, along with Don McIntyre, in the year 2000. Jason is best known for working with the Oregonians in action. Uh, the uh, Taxpayer Association of Oregon also has partner organizations and political action committee to assist various fronts, ballot measures, candidates, education, lobby, and, of course, their uh, OregonWatchdog.com indispensable web site uh, and faith report as well. Hey, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. 
great to be here. Well, let me uh, let me ask you to comment, if you will, on the uh, governor's state of the state as we anticipate the next, what is it, 33 days left, 32 days of the uh, Oregon legislative session? Yes, uh, they're meeting for uh, uh, for 35 days, and the clock has already started ticking. In fact, they they met, uh, everyone came into the building on Monday, and by Tuesday morning, they had their first hearing on the first tax, and the tax is scheduled to, uh, this huge business tax is actually scheduled for a vote on Friday to get out of committee, so they are doing things within 100 hours with virtually hardly any adequate public hearings. It's awful, and it's in terms of the governor's state of the state address, the best way I can say it is that I think it was the Oregonian that editorialized saying it was... It was candidate uh, yeah. Brown uh, <laughs> yeah. giving a speech and not our governor. Um, but there are two huge taxes at stake. One is the carbon cap and tax, and another one is a 30% small business tax. Well, and- let's talk about the, uh, the the cap and trade or cap and tax, however you want to refer to it. Now, that one I think many of them are now admitting is too big for this very short session, which at least gives us a little bit of time. But what's happening with that? Well, they had, a, they had a hearing that just began just a few hours ago on it. What this is, it basically sets a cap on carbon emissions, and if a company exceeds that cap, that company is forced to make a donation to this state program, and they estimate that these forced donations will total about $700 million. Now, you notice I'm not saying it's a tax. Um, they call it a forced donation. Well, they call it an investment. I call yeah. it a forced donation. It is a tax. But they use this scheme to get out of the tax, which is if a, whenever something is a tax, it has to get a three-fifths constitutional uh, higher threshold of votes. They're, uh, they're bypassing the Constitution. They're not calling it a tax. But when you take $700 million away from, from businesses in Oregon, uh, that's a tax. So it looks like they're at least laying some of the groundwork this time around. It's, it's definitely a priority for the Democrats in particular. Um, so we're not going to hear the end of this over these next uh, couple weeks. No, and this this carbon uh, tax and cap, it's been tried in other states. Yeah. And guess what? When you do that, the manufacturers get hit. I mean, if you're out there canning peaches or, you know, making canned green beans, a food processor, you're going to be hit. You emit a lot of uh, carbon emissions, but it, it, it's good. I mean, you're good for the economy. Well, these companies have been hit, and they end up leaving those states. And they'll either leave them to go across the state line um, or they will go to China. So you're not actually changing any uh, carbon levels. You're only punching businesses in the face, taking money from them, and then kicking them out the door to go somewhere else. So you you do that with no meaningful change in the environment, uh, lost high-paying jobs. And that's why states that have this cap and tax – they are losing manufacturing while the national average is gaining. So that tells you something. So apparently these uh, manufacturers don't appreciate the opportunity that's been extended to them uh, to pay more to do business in the state of Oregon, as we've seen in other states. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And the other taxes is also nefarious. They've said, well, the tax reform that everyone got here federally, that it gives small business a tax break. So the head of the revenue committee says, well, since small business is getting a tax break, now we could go tax them because they've got a tax break from the feds. And therefore, they have this 30% tax increase on small business. It only affects small business. And to let you know how this tax would change business in Oregon, 
it would create a penalty if you were family-owned because they would have a higher rate than a corporate-owned. So if you had a, two coffee shops right next to each other, same exact coffee shops, if one was family-owned, they would pay higher taxes than if it was Starbucks next door, even though they had the same amount of money. Same thing. If Walmart had a grocery store, and they would pay less taxes than if that grocery store was family-owned. If it was family-owned, they would pay higher taxes than Walmart, even if they had the same amount of employees and revenue. It is a very evil 30% business tax increase. Well, I hesitate to ask you to speculate, but how on earth are they explaining this as good for Oregon and good for Oregon business? Um, well, they... <laughs> They say that, um, like I said, they say, well, small business already got their tax relief. We don't want to give them too much. And plus, they want to take some of that money and pass it around uh, to other people. Um, So there's always that uh, aspect of it. And so it's like there's no end to the amount of good things a person can imagine giving free money to when you could tax, you know, the tarnation out of people on the other side of the ledger. Wow. And that's the uh, the one that has a hearing today and they're voting Friday. Yeah, well, the carbon uh, yes, that's the small business tax. They're having a they're well, excuse me. <laughs> the carbon tax is the one they're having hearing today. They've already had the small business tax cut uh small business tax increase hearing yesterday and it may be voted at a committee on Friday. I mean, this is just extraordinary. They just came into the building on Monday and wow. we're talking and within 5 days they're just wrapping up all the hearings and sending it out, and people don't even know what the bill language is. They don't even know what's happening. This is not a way to operate a democracy when it's done behind closed doors and you rush things through the process. And people are asked – those people who, who are fast enough to go and show up, they often get told, well, you've got only two minutes, and just make it quick and don't – you know. and it's just, it's just a machinery that – rewards taxes and shuts out the public. Well, it really is extraordinary. And because it's such a a short length of time, it happens so quickly, the vast majority of Oregonians have no idea what's happening. In fact, I went onto the uh, Oregon legislative website, and it's very difficult to follow and trace anything. If you don't know what's already been introduced, if you don't know what you're looking for, it's very difficult to navigate um, this effort to be transparent and provide information for Oregonians. Now, one of the things that I know that, they, um, uh, that they're going to be attempting to do, and maybe, again, this will be 2019, but fine-tuning the Medicaid finance system in the wake of um, the passage of Measure 101, which still I sort of want to gag on saying it, uh, having passed here in the state of Oregon. Have they begun uh, discussing or held hearings on moving forward with that? I have not uh, monitored that uh, close enough to find out, but you know, with Measure 101, we were involved with that. We helped provide people a chance to vote on that because that, too, was ramrodded through. But the sad thing about 101, and I have to tell people this because they get, they get discouraged, and you're discouraged. Yeah. got to remember the politicians wrote the ballot title, and they said this is an assessment, you know, that this is an assessment that funds health care. And people say, well, you know, what's wrong with an assessment? They don't realize that assessment was the code word for taxes. And people didn't realize they were voting on a tax. They just thought if something is assessed, it somehow funds health care. And we have got to stop politicians writing their own ballot titles for their own taxes because what they do is they hide the word tax. And that's, that's the new age we're living in. 
This Measure 101, they hide the word tax as an assessment. This carbon tax, they're not calling it a carbon tax. They're calling it a, a carbon cap and invest. That's what they call a tax, mm. an invest, an investment, <laughs> forcing you to invest money. This small business tax um, that I'm talking about, it is not being labeled as a tax because they take the money and give it to other people. So, therefore, they don't see it as an actual tax. They just see it as revenue exchanging money around. Uh, and so this is this is the new battle, uh, and I, this is why your show is so important because sometimes you just need to sit and talk to the listeners and say something really wrong is going on. They are changing the definition of a tax in order to sell it to you in a different way. That's a new battlefield for us. Yeah, you know, that whole semantic thing where you use a different word to convey or to hide what a thing really is in order to to gain the favor of uh, voters in Oregon, that that just ought to be slapped in the face. It's such a ridiculous way of trying to communicate, but it's an underhanded approach uh, to getting Oregonians to approve because we're very generous, open-hearted people. And and uh, if you just word it right, then people will support what they may or may not fully understand. It's, it's really reprehensible. I like how you say we're very generous people. In fact, if you take the total taxes and state spending, state and local, the whole pot of government money, and you compare us against all 50 states per capita, so per person, how much a dollar per person does our government spend? We are the sixth biggest spending state per capita in the nation. We spend more dollars per person than 44 other states, and no politician has ever said, thank you for giving more of your tax dollars than 44 other states. You are so generous. No, they're telling us that it's not enough. They raised the hotel tax 80%. They raised the gas tax by 10%. They raised uh, the uh, they put a tax on our health care. Um, they raised, you know, with the transportation taxes, the, the cost of owning a car went up. If you bought a new car, there's like a $200 tax uh, average on that. They put a payroll tax to fund transit on your pay on your wages that didn't exist last year it's now new um so what so. you're describing is our investment portfolio courtesy <laughs> of the Oregon legislature Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, we need to take a quick break. I want to ponder my investments. Uh, again, we're talking with Jason Williams, Executive Director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. We're talking about the legislative session. I already have a, I think I'm getting a migraine. I need to go take something just uh, thinking about it. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Jason Williams. He's executive director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. We're talking about the 2018 legislature. The uh, Oregon House released their 2018 agenda that uh, included fighting for the right to health care, investing in quality public education, building strong communities, defending our environment and uh, combating climate change, strengthening our economy, ensuring government is responsible responsive and effective, seeking justice and equal rights for all, protecting consumers at home and online. Sufficiently vague and a a long list for a very short period of time. What else should we be looking for in this um, 35-day marathon? Um, I know that there's some uh, Second Amendment issues coming up, and there's also a a property tax issue that uh, I just saw kind of a notice thing coming through. also, I, I forgot to mention when I was saying that, yes, they put a tax on our health care, a gas tax increase, hotel t- tax increase, and a, 
you know, a payroll tax increase. I forgot to mention the 520 fee increases last year that were voted in. That's 520 fee increases, including if you're getting married, you're, it's now more expensive. If you're getting divorced, it's more expensive. No matter how way you love, you will cost you more to love in the state of Oregon because of it. Um, and those those fees include fishing, hunting. If your occupation, like a hairdresser or electrician, depends on occupational licenses, those went up. So you, it's become more expensive just to have a job. The taxes go up even if you had, don't even have a single customer the taxes are going up. So I just had to mention the 520 fees. It actually may be like 580 fee increases, but that's another way that uh, our taxes have gone up that we don't see. So I just want to lay that out there on the line. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And I appreciate your mentioning fees because we often think of taxes that are assessed by the government that we, you know, our our, um, taxes that are paid by April 15th, that's what reflects. But there's so much more that we're paying that we may or may not be uh, fully aware of that is levied against us by various levels of government, um, and it it can be overwhelming to go through that laundry list. Yeah, and and it's hard. It makes or breaks uh, uh, businesses, and it makes or breaks people's dreams. People s- sit there and they try to pencil out, "Hey, can I start a business? Can I can I be that farmer at the farmer's market? Can I take it to that farmer's market?" Well, when you're raising taxes. You know, you're raising gas taxes. Well, you're raising the cost of every item that you purchase because it takes gas to get there. And uh, we we had just a we're doing a battle in Hood River. Hood River wants to become the first county in Oregon to have its own sales tax. And they don't realize that that you put a sales tax on them, and uh, people are just going to shop online. They're just going to go to Amazon, skip the tax altogether. And so businesses, what happens is when people do sales taxes, they say, well, I'm going to go to the next city. So, so you lose customers. And what do they do? They say, well, we're not bringing in the revenue, so we've got to raise the, the sales tax up. So that's going on in Hood River County. And, and, and a few months ago, Ontario tried to become the first city in Oregon to pass a sales tax. And we jumped in there, and we did a petition drive with a local brave people there. It's, we forced it to the ballot, and that's going to come up. But You'd be amazed on the local level. As we're talking about fees, don't ever underestimate the local level. Multnomah County, where a lot of your listeners are, they're trying to put on a soda tax uh, on Mm -hmm. the ballot. Seattle did, and a 12-pack of Coca-Cola, seven bucks. Seven bucks. (laughs) Um, Wow. And so it's it's always strange that, that on one hand they're raising taxes because they're saying we're obese, and then they're raising taxes because... We have a poverty problem, you know, a hunger problem, so we've got to raise taxes uh, to fight hunger, and we've got to raise taxes to fight obesity. And somehow uh, someone's making a lot of money, and uh, the rates are not changing for <laughs> either, So, which, which is kind of, you know, we just, they just put a tax on health care to make health care affordable. Portland just passed a tax on homes construction to pay for affordable housing. It gets pretty silly after a while, Georgine. Yeah, doesn't it though? Now, I think a lot of us are frustrated. What's the what are some of the best ways that you can think of to for people to follow the local um news? First of all, the um the legislature, you know, we've got 35 days. Um there is an Oregon legislative page, but unless you know what you're looking for, it's kind of difficult to follow. Um, I know that Oregon um Watchdog, that's a great site where you provide great information. Any other suggestions? Um 
you know, a follow closely with the news, although I, I just heard, I think the Oregonian just laid off another 20 reporters. Uh, it's sad. We're, we're living in a time where the, the, the news reporters are uh, are disappearing. So you really need to depend on groups that you care about. Uh, you know, um, there are a lot of interest groups that they send out. So if you're a business person, there's business groups that send out business alerts, you know, your your trade groups. You know, Oregon Watchdog, of course, because we any political story, uh, we link to that news story mm-hmm. every single morning. Um, but it's it's hard finding out what's happening there in the state capitol because they do it in the dark, um, especially during a 35-day session. They they figure out what they're going to do behind closed doors. They they rush a meeting, a public hearing, and then they just try to speed that through, and people don't even know what's in the bill. And when they start calling taxes as revenue enhancements or they call taxes as investments, um, you know, I mean, look, this, this, this carbon tax, $700 million, and they're calling it an investment. Hmm. They're forcing these companies to invest in this, this slush fund that the politicians create, $700 million into that. And that's going to – in states where they do this carbon tax, this cap and tax – I want to let you know that like California has done it. Their gas prices are higher, their grocery prices go up, and their utility rates go up. So you're, if we pass this, your heating bill is going to go up, grocery prices are going to go up, and gas, which we estimate may hit $4 a gallon. Well, the good news is, at least based on the way the legislature seems to function, we all have an unlimited uh, resource to draw from. Uh, and so we don't really have m- much to worry about. Well, Jason, I, I appreciate so much uh, you're keeping a finger on the pulse of what's happening in Oregon. I go to uh, to your webpage every day and check that out as I'm preparing for the show and just want to know what's going on uh, in our state and appreciate your commitment to informing people and championing issues that are in all of our best interests. And thanks for joining us here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate Jason. it very much. Again, uh, Jason Williams is executive director at uh, Taxpayers Association of Oregon, talking about the uh, legislative session. It's uh, capped at 35 days. We're already a couple of days into it. And uh, as Jason was indicating, they're moving very quickly on a number of things that you may or may not approve of, but will definitely have an impact on your pocketbook. Uh, It's difficult to follow, but I would encourage you to make the effort. Um, Part of the problem with this short session is, uh, even if you are following, it's it's difficult to communicate in a timely manner on those issues that you care about. We talked with uh, Lois yesterday from Oregon Right to Life, and I'm grateful that they have a system by which they can send out an email on this issue that has the potential to impact those with mental illness or dementia uh, so that you can communicate very quickly. Um, but that's that's an exception, uh, not the not the rule. Uh, with regard to this legislative session. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. In this hour, we're going to talk with Holly Mead. She's the Liberty Council's Director of Communications. She's also the International Director of the Day of Purity. That's coming up on February 14th. We'll tell you all about it. Uh, kids from all across the country and around the world are observing the Day of Purity, and we'll tell you how and why when she joins us at the bottom of the hour. Well, the Olympic uh, Games begin Wednesday. 
I know what you're thinking. The opening ceremony isn't until Friday, but yeah, they begin on Wednesday. That's because there are so many competitions, so many competitors that they actually have to start uh, a couple of days early to make sure they all get in. This is sort of like the uh, the awards that are given early at the Grammys because there's not enough time to put everything on television. Well, curling gets underway with the new mixed doubles division. That's apparently new. The United States takes on the Olympic athletes from Russia at 4.05 p.m. Portland time. Russia as a nation has been banned from these games over doping, but its uh, non-banned athletes are allowed to compete. Uh, should they win gold, however, they will not hear the Russian anthem by the Olympic, an- uh, but the Olympic anthem. So that's a bit of a bummer for those who have trained the right way. Uh, by the way, you can uh, watch all of that on NBC. Uh, you'll need to. Um, uh, authenticate that you have a cable or satellite subscription, but you can watch it uh, there. And uh, again, the, the games will begin on Wednesday for most competitors, but the opening ceremonies on Friday. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's 28-year-old sister is going to make her debut on the world stage. She's visiting South Korea to attend the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics on Friday, Seoul's Unification Ministry says. Pyongyang told Seoul that uh, Kim Jong-un um, uh, would accompany Kim Jong-nam, North Korea's nominal head of state, along with uh, Cho Hui, uh, who's the chairman of the National Sports Guidance Committee, and Ri Song-won, who uh, led inter-Korean talks last month, according to the ministry. Now, Kim Jong-un, or Young, who is the sister of Kim Jong-un, uh, would be the first member of the Kim family born on a, a sacred mount um, Paektu, or something like that, which is the centerpiece of the North's uh, ide- uh, idealized, it's not quite right, the, the right word, anyway, the propaganda campaign to cross the border to the South since the Korean War. So this is a pretty big deal, at least for the family, to cross that border. Her inclusion in the delegation is meaningful, as she's not only the sister of the country's leader, but has a significant position as a senior official of the ruling Workers' Party, the South's presidential Blue House says. It shows the North's resolve, and I'm quoting here from them, uh, to diffuse tensions on the Korean Peninsula, Blue House spokesman said at a news briefing, to diffuse tension. But the trip could become a source of contention because Seoul and Washington, as she was um, blacklisted last year by the U.S. Treasury Department. So uh, that uh, blacklist means she shouldn't cross the border, shouldn't be able to at all. Uh, And she was blacklisted over human rights abuses and censorship uh, while Cho faces a travel ban under the U.N. Security Council's sanctions. So the pair of them, Cho Hui is a chairman of the National Sport Guidance Committee in sort of an honorary position. Uh, neither one technically should be able to attend the games. Kim Jong-un, or Yong, is vice director of the party's propaganda and agitation department. How would you like to be the head of the propaganda and agitation department? They handle ideological messaging through the media, arts, and culture. Uh, Cho had previously worked for the same body, the pair of them will be coming to South Korea for the games. In 2016, South Korea's former spy chief was Kim Yo Young, uh, was seen abusing power, punishing propaganda department executives for minor mistakes, much like her brother. One of the positives of her visit is that she is someone able to deliver a direct message on behalf of Kim Yong Un. That's what a professor at the Korea National Diplomatic Academy in Seoul says. What is problematic is that she's coming uh, with Cho Hui, Uh, This raises worries that North Korea likely intends to use this Olympics as a propaganda tool. I'm shocked. Really? North Korea is going to use this as a propaganda tool? Again, I'm shocked. Rather than a possible opening to meaningful dialogue with South Korea, as we all had thought. 
<clears throat> anyway, the opening ceremony will also be attended by Vice President Mike Pence, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, and other world leaders. Pence said after talks with Abe in Tokyo on Wednesday that Washington would soon unveil its toughest ever economic sanctions on the North, calling the country the most tyrannical and oppressive regime on the planet. Uh, Choi Kang, who's the vice president of the Asian Institute for Policy Studies in Seoul, South Korea, said that the United States would be unhappy to see South Korea trying to undermine all the rigid sanctions that it had worked so hard to put in place by granting exemptions for the sake of the Olympics, which, of course, it has already done. Personally, Pence would feel uncomfortable just being in the same place with North Koreans, he went on to say. Well, having previously only occasionally appearing, uh, appeared rather in the background, the young heiress uh, has moved to the front and center of media photos, more recently assisting her brother on numerous state events, probably because he's already killed off other family members. In October, uh, she was promoted to the party's Politburo and sort of opaque, all-powerful decision-making body. They decide top state affairs. The promotion is a sign that uh, Kim Jong-un is uh, consolidating his position by drawing his most important people closer to the center of power, according to experts. On Tuesday, Kim Yo. Young uh, was seen in state and media uh, uh, greeting North Korean art troupe uh, that has since departed for the South to stage performances during the Olympics. And so she's becoming much more visible. She could deliver a message from Kim Jong-un in a way that conveys personal seriousness and commitment that even Kim Jong-nam couldn't, uh, says a research fellow at the Pacific Forum. Uh, in Hawaii, it may be a sign that Pyongyang is going to pull out all the stops in the next couple of weeks in terms of making plans with Seoul. Well, that certainly may be the case. But um, again, there's some question about uh, that, given the history. Well, a group of 280 North Koreans are arriving today in South Korea. That's past tense now. One of the largest peacetime crossings of the inner Korean uh, border uh, sp- uh, to spur these athletes from uh, two sides at the Olympic Games, beside the 229-member cheer squad uh, that formed the bulk of the group, there were 26 Taekwondo performers, 21 journalists, four North Korean Olympics committee members, including sports minister Kim Il-guk. So there are actually only 26 athletes, it would appear, among that large delegation. They celebrated their first night in South Korea with a banquet at uh, the hotel, dining on roasted scallops, steak, beef marrow soup, shrimp wrapped in thinly sliced radish, Of course, the people in North Korea are pretty hungry right about now. Uh, They arrived a day after a North Korean ferry crossed the border with 137 strong orchestra to perform during the games. So they're, um, again, pulling out all the stops. Uh, After the troops' uh, arrival on the ferry, which is also being used uh, uh, as accommodation, North Korea asked the South to provide oil for refueling the unification ministry. Apparently, they didn't have enough to get back home after all of this Um, is over. But again, this may in fact be, you know, a signal that all is well, not so much. Well, there is concern about the norovirus and freezing temperatures for the Olympic Games, and that's caused havoc so far for the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. Uh, The Winter Olympics has been hit with an outbreak of the norovirus with 54 new cases confirmed there. It brings the total suffering with a highly contagious virus to 86. Dozens of security guards at the Games have been affected. Many of them have been uh, taken to hospitals suffering severe diarrhea, vomiting following the breakout on Sunday. They've been removed from their post and 
Consequently, some 1,200 guards had been withdrawn from the Olympic sites, quarantined in their rooms, uh, with organizers forced to call in 900 soldiers to take their place. Uh, places, rather. Security guards, they've been quarantined as well. It's uh, the latest crisis to hit the Games, which officially gets underway with the opening ceremonies on Friday. There were already concerns about the severity of the cold uh, currently uh, freezing Pyeongchang. In fact, they're predicting this could be the coldest Games to date. Temperatures during the opening ceremony are expected to be 10 degrees, uh, excuse me, minus 10 degrees Celsius, uh, while the wind chill during the rehearsals plummeted to minus 23 degrees Celsius. The Pyeongchang Olympic Stadium is very exposed. Athletes are understandably concerned for their health, with British team bosses advising against attendance if uh, due to um, compete within 48 hours of the three-hour ceremony. uh, That could hinder their performance. The president of the organizing committee of the Games uh, said that I heard some people aren't coming here because of the cold weather, but I want to tell you we're prepared through uh, thoroughly for that. Don't worry. To compensate for the cold, the 35,000 spectators attending the opening ceremony uh, will be given a raincoat, a small blanket, a winter cap, heating packs for their hands and feet, and a heating pad to sit on. Um... I suppose that will help uh, if you're cold and it's minus 23 degrees centigrade in the stadium in Pyeongchang. And, of course, you're not moving in the stadium for the athletes. Um, I don't know. Their pretty outfits may not be as visible if they're bundled up in fur coats. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our next segment, we're going to talk with Holly Mead. She's with Liberty Council. She's the Director of Communications, but she's also the International Director for the Day of Purity. That's coming up on the 14th, Valentine's Day, and this is the 15th year they've observed uh, this day, not only here uh, in the United States, but uh, many countries across the globe as well. So we'll talk with her about that. So stay with us. Well, five prominent conservative women have called on leaders of the Time's Up anti-sexual misconduct movement to replace Anita Hill as the head of the Commission on Sexual Harassment in Hollywood because of comments she once made about former President Clinton, led by Penny Nance, who's the president and chief executive officer of Concerned Women for, uh, for America. Uh, which is a a conservative public policy group. The women charged that in a 1998 interview with the late Tim Russert on NBC's Meet the Press, she appeared to defend Clinton's inappropriate behavior toward women and dismiss allegations made by his accusers. Well, the move uh, comes as the Me Too movement has led to a broad reassessment of Clinton's treatment of women. That's... uh, Uh, The president and his wife, with even some prominent Democratic women saying he was too easily forgiven. Senator Kristen Gillibrand, who succeeded Hillary Clinton in the Senate, recently said that Bill Clinton should have resigned when his affair with the White House intern Monica Lewinsky came to light, not mentioning other accusations that were uh, not consensual. The Commission for Eliminating Sexual Harassment and Advancing Equality in the Workplace was created by film industry executives, among others, to examine women's treatment in Hollywood in light of the scandals involving Harvey Weinstein and other powerful men in the business. Well, in an email, Nance said that Hill's appointment had made the panel a political club rather than a bipartisan effort. Hill is not trusted by conservative women, she said. Hollywood had the opportunity to own their sin and clean up their mess, but instead chose to make political points. That's disappointing. They should replace Hill. 
Well, in the interview uploaded to YouTube, Russert asked Hill about the, an incident which uh, the president, then President Clinton, reportedly made a pass at a supporter. Russert asked whether it should have been deemed acceptable because Clinton backed off when he was told no. Hill didn't defend the behavior but said it needed to be considered in context. I think we have to evaluate it not on the basis of whether it's sexual harassment, but evaluate it on the basis of what we would like to see in terms of the behavior and the moral decisions and judgments of the president's. Uh, president singular. She added that there were, uh, was a need to look at the totality of Clinton presidency and how has it been on women's issues generally. In other words, if you do the right things, you kind of get a pass. Uh, is he our best bet, notwithstanding some behavior that we might dislike, Hill said. I don't think that most women have come to the point where we've said, well, this is so bad that even if he's better on the bigger issues, we can't have him as president. Hmm. Well, the letter from Concerned Women sent January 25th slammed Hill's comments. In addition to Nance, it was signed by evangelist Alveda King of Civil Rights for the Unborn, Kay Cole James, a former director of the U.S. Office of Personal Management, Personnel Management under uh, President George W. Bush, Jenny Beth Martin, president and co-founder of Tea Party Patriots, and Cleta Mitchell, a former member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives. It was addressed to the women who spearheaded the commission's creation in December. Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy, Nike Foundation co-chair uh, Maria Eitel, attorney Nina Shaw, and venture capitalist and activist Frida Kapoor Klein. Uh, and uh, thus far, there has not been... Uh, a response, nor is there any indication that they intend to change the leader, the head of that uh, of that effort. Uh, also, interestingly, of course, Anita Hill is not part of uh, the Hollywood cabal either. Well, a California bakery owner can continue to refuse to make wedding cakes for same-sex couples because it violates her Christian beliefs, so says a judge ruling recently. The decision came after a lawyer from um, Tastry's Bakery in Bakersfield, California, argued that owner Kathy Miller's rights to free speech and free expression of religion trumps the argument that she needed a state anti-discrimination law. Kern County Superior Court Judge David Lamp, he uh, agreed but said Monday his ruling was tied closely to the fact that Miller was being asked to make a cake for an event and that the act of creating it was protected artist expression. Well, Lamp uh, cautioned that freedom of uh, religion does not give businesses a right to refuse service to groups protected by the uh, UNRU uh, Civil Rights Act and other circumstances, the Bakersfield Californian reported. A retail tire shop may not refuse to sell a tire because the owner does not uh, want to sell tires to same-sex couples, Lampy uh, wrote. No baker may place their wares in a public display case, open their shop, and then refuse to sell because of race, religion, gender, or gender identification. Well, Miller said it went uh, against her Christian beliefs to make a cake for a same-sex couple. She told the newspaper she was uh, overjoyed with the ruling and respected the distinction that Lampy made between the sales of a cake and the creation of one. I am very happy to serve everything from my cases to anybody, she said, but I cannot be part of a celebration that goes against my Lord and Savior, end quote. Well, and an attorney for the uh, the couple who bought the uh, who brought the case was not available for comment, but the decision comes at the same time the Supreme Court is preparing to rule in a high-profile case of a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. That baker, Jack Phillips, claims his First Amendment uh, uh, rights to artistic freedom were being violated, and the Supreme Court will rule in that case and perhaps um, give some clarity moving forward for other cases 
in other uh, areas of the country, as this is a question that has arisen certainly here in Oregon and other places across the fruited plain. So we'll see what the Supreme Court decides to say. And uh, my understanding is a decision is expected there sometime um, in uh, late uh, spring or early summer. So we'll keep our eyes and ears uh, open for that. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with Holly Mead. She is Liberty Council's Director of Communications and International Director for the Day of Purity, which is uh, annually held on Valentine's Day, February the 14th. This is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the 15th year that this occasion has been uh, uh, spearheaded by Liberty Council. And it may seem like a something of a an odd uh, focus for that organization in that they are a legal organization that provides uh, counsel in religious liberty cases. But we'll ask uh, Holly why this is a focus that they have um, engaged in and why so many in this country and elsewhere are engaged in uh, encouraging young people uh, to abstain from sexual activity uh, in the uh, in high school, middle school, and uh, in colleges. Now, they have a, a website. We'll tell you more about that when she joins us, as well as a bracelet. They're asking young people to wear white on that day, uh, and the bracelet uh, declares that this is what uh, what they're doing and encouraging them to engage in conversation with their peers in addressing the issue of sexual promiscuity. We're also going to talk about what are the benefits of of uh, declining to engage in premarital sexual activity for those who choose not to. And there's some, uh, there's some stats that indicate that there are benefits beyond the obvious. So we'll talk with her about that. All right. So Holly Mead will join us um, in our next segment. Um, also, I wanted to remind you that there's an opportunity for you to participate in a tremendous amount of travel here in the Pacific. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I'm sorry if you could see across the glasses I'm st- staring at Clark <laughs> an opportunity to travel you need to go to kpdq.com there are a couple of opportunities the European Reformation Tour with Alistair Begg and then there's also an opportunity to travel to Israel so if that's on your your bucket list you want to make sure you uh, check out uh, check out opportunities to travel right here through Salem Media <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll be <laughs> we'll be back. <laughs> You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may or may not know that the 15th annual Day of Purity is a project that's led by Liberty Council and it's uh, held on Valentine's Day to promote uh, purity and respect. And it encourages and celebrates young people who choose to save sexual intimacy for marriage. Well, here to talk with us about that is Holly Mead. She's Liberty Council's Director of Communications and the International Director for the Day of Purity. Coming up on February 14th. Thank you so much for joining us. Be with you. Thank you. Now, this is, as I mentioned, the 15th annual day of purity. And while this has been an observation here in the U.S., my understanding is there's been interest expressed uh, in 37 other countries as well. Yes, throughout the years, we've gotten different emails from various countries, you know, saying, yes, we agree with you, we're participating in this. So it's been very exciting to see that even though even those who aren't in the U.S. are participating and standing up for sexual purity. Well, let's talk about um, what the, the day entails and why it's important for young people to designate a day to make a public declaration of these. Uh, this is my intention. 
Well, you know, I think the need for this, the, the day of purity, is, is really obvious. In our culture, in our society, you know, young people are being blasted with a message that uh, sexual promiscuity is glamorous, that they should be becoming active, they should become sexually active at a young age and experiment with their sexual preferences. And so this gives them those opportunity to stand up and say, no, we stand for self-respect and we choose just to say sexual intimacy for marriage. Uh, we base the day of purity on the verse 1 Timothy 4.12, which says, don't, look, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So they're encouraged on February 14th to wear white, and uh, we also have a special wristband that some of them choose to wear as well that has that scripture on them, the Live Pure wristband. Um, but it, it sends a message to the world, I think, into our culture that these young people are willing to stand up for their own self-respect and to save their sexual purity for marriage. And it's giving a very positive message to parents and churches and community and legislators that this is what we want. You know, it's interesting, in addition to the pressure and the relentless exposure to sexual activity that young people are exposed to, they're also in entertainment media ridiculed. Characters Mm. who are portrayed as being uh, virgins are ridiculed for that as if there was something terribly wrong with them and they need to catch up with everyone else to demonstrate that they are, in fact, uh, normal and and that to do otherwise is somehow abnormal. So this is a very strong message that's being peddled to young people today. Absolutely, and you know um, it's important to know the devastating consequences of that type of oversexualized culture. I mean, women who marry as virgins have a six percent divorce rate rather than the forty to fifty percent average in our culture. Teens who are sexually abstinent make an average of more money during their lifetime. And every day in America, 8,000 teens will be infected with a sexually transmitted disease. You don't really hear that in the media. I've not seen that in Hollywood, no. no. <laughs> you know, and then the tragedy, too, is that many of those teens that become pregnant will choose to abort their children. Mm. And so that's another tra- tra- travity, another tragedy as well. Yeah, absolutely. You get one side of the message, but certainly not the other. How widespread is this uh, movement? I've mentioned that it's the 15th annual Day of Purity. Um, How many young people have been and are expected to participate this year? You know, we don't have a number. Uh, We just sent out the press release today. But I do know of of one group of college students in Indianapolis and Marion University are planning to all wear white and hand out white carnations as a sign that they are standing for self-respect and purity at marriage and encourage others on that campus to do the same. Yeah, and I think that's another important element, another important aspect of this uh, this day set aside for, for uh, sexual purity and self-respect is that there are other young people who made that commitment in their own mind, mm-hmm. but uh, don't really, they see themselves as being isolated and perhaps have become right. convinced what Hollywood is telling them about uh, that choice. It can encourage others to live up to the commitments that they've made, maybe solely on the fact that it just makes common sense for a young person to abstain right. for a variety of reasons. And, you know, there's always strength in numbers. When they see yeah. one group standing up for that, then they're not as apt to be afraid to say, yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I am saving myself for marriage, and I am respecting myself in this way. Now, when we think about um, 
uh, Liberty Council, we don't think about this kind of an event. How did Liberty Council become involved in establishing this opportunity for young people? Well, you know, Liberty Council, one of our areas uh, is family and marriage. And, uh, of course, that involves young people. We deal a lot of cases that involve young people. So we just really see the need to encourage this in our young people. And, of course, we also stand up for the sanctity of human life. And if you can start now and really encourage young people, as we said, to be uh, sexually pure until marriage, that will hopefully avoid some of those over 350,000 abortions that will occur in one year. Now, um, we mentioned that uh, Valentine's Day is the day to celebrate purity and self-respect uh, and mm-hmm. that young people are encouraged to wear white on that day. On that day, rather, There's also a Live Pure wristband that they're encouraged right. to wear on that day and then throughout the year. What's the best way for our listeners, parents and young people alike, uh, to find out more and to acquire the Live Pure wristband? Sure. And, you know, we also, Georgia, we also have a proclamation that they can download and sign that, just stating that we as a group in this area are, are standing up for um, our self-respect and sexual purity. And you can go to our website at lc.org. That's lc.org. You can find all that there. Well, that's uh, that's excellent. Uh, again, I would encourage uh, folks who are interested in more information uh, to check out the website and then uh, find out more about the uh, the wristband as well. Now, the proclamation, are you encouraging young people to sign it, to download it? What's the, what do you hope will be uh, done with that? Yes, we encourage them to download it and sign it and then share it with others, you know, post it on social media. Tell us about it. You know, we're excited to hear the different groups that are doing this in the areas throughout the nation and the world. You know, so tell the world, let us know. But yes, that is a, you know, when you make um, a written statement about something, I think it really makes a statement to other people that, yes, I've committed to do this and it's in writing. It's set in stone, so to speak. All right. Again, that's coming up on the 14th, which is Valentine's Day, a great opportunity to distinguish oneself mm-hmm. as being self-controlled and setting a high bar for uh, for activity with uh, the opposite sex. And uh, I want to encourage our, our listeners, young people and their parents and grandparents uh, to uh, be involved and to encourage those uh, on their college and high school and maybe even middle school campuses to participate in this great opportunity. Hey, I thank you for uh, letting us know about it. I was unaware until I received that press release earlier today. I appreciate so much of what Liberty Council does, and I thank you as the International Director of the Day of Purity uh, for the role you're playing in helping to encourage young people to boldly go where, well, too few of them has, have gone before. That's right, right. <laughs> thank you so much, and we're here to support them and encourage them as well. So it's an honor to be able to do that. Thanks, Holly. Thank you. Again, Holly Mead is the Liberty Council Director of Communications, and she's also the International Director for the Day of Purity, which takes some some real resolve and and courage on the part of a young person to say, I'm wearing white today, I'm wearing this bracelet, I'm talking about sexual purity in um, uh, among my peers on Valentine's Day when so much of the emphasis is on other things, which reinforces their own resolve as well as encourage and perhaps inspire other young people to do likewise. So you can check them out online. And again, that Live Pure wristband, which you can acquire uh, through Liberty Council's website, uh, is something they're encouraging young people to wear throughout the year. And then that declaration that she mentioned as well can be downloaded on the website. So there you have it. We're going to take a break here in just a moment to wrap things up. We'll let you know a little bit about what's coming up uh, the remainder of this uh, week. So I hope you will stay with us. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
And we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Tom Holliday. He is the author of Putting It Together Again, When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. The book is published by Zondervan. Looking forward to that conversation tomorrow. Well, David French, reflecting on the now-concluded Super Bowl, yeah, the Super Bowl. Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. I'm still having a little bit of trouble with that. But in National Review, he wrote a, a column titled, Yes, God Cares About Football, regarding the Philadelphia Eagles teaching moment. And he writes that on Sunday night, the Super Bowl ended. And for more than uh, for about 20 minutes, a late night church service began from coaches to players. The Philadelphia Eagles thanked Jesus, professed their love for Jesus, expressed how Christ had provided strength through adversity. In other words, and ironically, given their fans rather cruel public image, it was a normal Eagles kind of day. This was not extraordinary. It was not uh, developed and designed for the Super Bowl if they won. Well, the sports world is more publicly religious than the rest of pop culture. Football is more publicly religious than the rest of sports. And the Philadelphia Eagles are more publicly religious than most football teams. So you can kind of put them uh, in their place there. Writing on Super Bowl Sunday, the Washington Post's Bob Smynata, he chronicled the team's faith commitment, writing, The team produced a video separate from the one being shown on Super Bowl Sunday, highlighting faith as a binding force in the team locker room. Eagles players even held baptism in the team's uh, um, cold tub and at a hotel pool. About 30,000 people have viewed a Bible study that features the Eagles and other NFL players. Frank Reich, the offensive coordinator for the Eagles, spent time in the ministry after his NFL career was over, serving as a pastor in seminary professor before becoming a coach. Well, quarterbacks Nick Foles and Carson Wentz are outspoken about their faith. Coach Doug Peterson coached at a Christian high school, uh, and the list goes on. The Eagles are so Christian, in fact, that as the Super Bowl ended, the writer, Mr. French, says, I embraced for a, or, uh, he braced rather for a backlash. After all, before America fought over patriotism and football, it, fought, it battled rather over God and football. A quick Google search reveals an avalanche of commentary stretching back for years. Would the football holy war be? Began anew. Tim Tebow comes to mind. Thankfully, he goes on to write, the answer was largely no. Yes, Twitter flared with vitriol, but that's Twitter being, well, Twitter. That was worth, um, there was worth anger over the solo teaser trail, uh, trailer, rather. Perhaps even uh, militant atheists were grateful to see the Patriots lose. Perhaps partisans were too distracted by the memo and the host of other controversies that rip apart our civil society. Whatever the reason, peace largely prevailed. But still, I saw the question raised time and again. Does God care about football? Well, it's a question worth answering in large part because it goes to the heart of our conception of God's nature, his character, and his relationship with man. There are those who look at Christian athletes and say that their expressions of faith diminish God. They take uh, uh, the God of the universe and relegate him to the status of a divine football commissioner, dispensing gridiron glory for the sake of rewarding the hard work or grit of his favorite children. When the world groans under the weight of the fall, divided by war, battered by hurricanes, afflicted with disease, the notion that God cares in the slightest about which millionaire athlete wins which sporting contest can strike a person as slightly obscene. But it's, um, it's obscene only if one thinks of God as a limited being with a finite amount of attention. 
As if he's distracted from the crisis in Syria to make sure that a pro quarterback can offer a social media lesson and how to triumph over adversity. He can't sustain the suffering people of Puerto Rico because he's micromanaging a free safety's tackle on a game-saving play. In reality, the notion that God is intimately involved in the lives of his children magnifies his glory. The God who created the universe has the capacity of infinite attention and care, including attention and care, for the lowliest of his creatures. In Matthew, Christ talks about how God clothes the grass of the field and feeds the birds of the air, and we are of far more value than animals and plants. The scriptures go on and on. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All means all. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every means every. Even our own plans are meaningless compared with God's will. The heart of a man's plans are his way, or rather the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's even a strong biblical example that should deter any believer from accepting praise without thanking God. Just ask the worm-eaten King Herod who basked in the praise of men without giving God the glory. Moreover, there's something specific about football, distinct from other sports, that can concentrate a person's faith. Yes, football is more religious in part because of its southern strongholds. The South is more religious in general. Yes, football is more religious in part because it's disproportionately black. African-Americans are more religious. But I'd also post that, posit rather that something else is in play, keen awareness of human frailty. Have you watched the game? Well, that might seem clear. While athletes can suffer gruesome injuries in virtually any sport, just ask Paul George or Gordon Hayward, few athletes risk what football players risk when they take the field. An athlete can condition himself perfectly, train his body to achieve its greatest possible strength, and one wayward hit can end a career. So the athletes who are most self-aware can also be among the humblest people alive. They recognize their lack of control over their own destiny. Football requires physical courage. For many of us, physical courage flows from faith. The uh, capriciousness of the game should dictate a measure of humility. For many of us, humility flows from faith. For the vast majority of athletes, that declaration of thanks to God isn't a declaration that God is an eagle or a patriot, but that God loves them and has given them every good thing in their lives. So, yes, God cares about football, or perhaps we should say football players, because he cares about the players. He orders their steps. He grants them good and perfect gifts. He teaches them amid the pain of loss and adversity, which they, like the rest of us, all have. I'd even go so far as to say that God cares about football because he cares about football fans. Shared joy is a powerful bonding force, as is shared pain. I love sports, not just because of the thrill of competition, but also because sports bond a community and even a family through the power of shared experience. Yes, that can manifest itself in a deeply unhealthy way. Just look at the reputation of the Philly fans most recently. But there are few spaces left in American life where Americans of every race, creed and color can experience a sense of true fellowship. Is that not a good gift? I know that bad theology abounds. I know that some people view victory as a formula that can be achieved through the right degree of faith. But good theology tells us that the same God who spoke the universe into existence doesn't just love the individual people he created. He became part of uh, his own creation, experienced our pains and temptations and took on our suffering and sin. God doesn't just understand or author our joy at the small things of life. He experienced it. When Nick Foles and Doug Peterson gave glory to God after the Super Bowl, they were doing exactly what God's people should do. 
praise him as the source of their immense blessing. And for players on the other side, their adversity serves its own purpose. In the face of triumph, humility dictates that we credit the source of our strength. In the face of loss, faith encourages us that adversity will work together for good. There is such worth seeing it. There is much worth, rather, seeing that reality play out on the larger public stage, even if that stage is only a football game, the biggest football game in the world. So uh, David French makes the uh, argument, I think rather persuasively, that yes, God cares about football because he cares about football players. And the Philadelphia Eagles certainly took full advantage of the teaching moment uh, that they had uh, following the Super Bowl game, but have done so throughout the season. I think I mentioned earlier that they've produced a number of videos in which some of the players have given their testimonies, and that's been a mark of many of the players on that team. So congratulations to the Philadelphia Evil <laughs> Evils. See, I had to just say it because I was the fan of the other team. The Philadelphia Eagles. I can say it and mean it. Um, a bunch of good guys apparently on that team. Well, once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Tom Holliday. His book is titled, titled Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. Might want to have the Patriots uh, listen in on that one since things seem to have fallen apart somewhat for them. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program and um, uh, James Blend for producing. Also want to encourage you, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my earlier conversation with Jason Williams, he's executive director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. We talked about the uh, legislative session. And if you want to get kind of a rundown of what's what to expect over the next what we have, 33 days, 32 days left. Uh, you can check that out. It was about 4.30 uh, in the first hour of today's program. Go to kpdq.com. Hey, thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.